What I miss most about St Andrews is the politics. I wish I was making up that comment, but I'm not. Uh, The church isn't called St Andrews. That part is made up. Actually, it may not be made up because so many Presbyterian churches are called St Andrews, but that is a real quote from someone talking about a church they used to go to. What I miss about my previous church, my previous church family, is the politics. It's a real comment about a real church. A church that had been caught up in conflict, factions, power-broking politics. Uh, Terribly sad. Terribly sad. If you ask someone at that church, what's the cause of the conflict that you can just feel the moment you walk in the door, they wouldn't know really how to answer because it has been politicking for so long that it's no longer an issue. It's not a disagreement over the style of music or whether to have cakes or biscuits at morning tea. The issue is just power and personalities. Sadly, this isn't an uncommon experience and maybe you've been part of a church where to a greater or lesser extent this has been the case. And it's a situation that goes right back, back to the time of Jesus and his disciples. And today we're going to see how Jesus responds to politicking and power plays among his followers. It's hard-hitting stuff today. But with Jesus, his serious words are always there to lead us to his grace. Uh, Last week in the previous bit of Mark's biography of Jesus, we saw a potentially embarrassing situation for Jesus' followers. Uh, Whilst Jesus was up the mountain and Peter, James and John were given a glimpse of his glory, the other nine were down the bottom arguing with religious leaders and looking foolish because they couldn't help a desperate father. And I wonder if it's this situation, maybe one of those three were feeling superior because only they got to see this amazing sight, or maybe one of the nine, well, they were thinking, well, Jesus left us down in the, in the valley because only we have the strength to deal with that situation. Whatever set it off, as they returned to Capernaum, they're politicking and trying to work out who's the best, maybe who's Jesus' favourite. Verse 33, have a look there, Mark chapter 9 and verse 33. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. How powerful is a question at the right time? While they were on the road, I'm sure they were all enjoying the argy-bargy. I'm sure they felt offended when someone suggested they were great and they were deeply satisfied when they managed to get one back at them and show how much greater they actually are. But now, in this house, and from chapter 1, it's probably Peter and Andrew's family home, in this house, Jesus asks one question. One question, and they are speechless in shame. And in that silence, Jesus drops a bomb. In his kingdom, in his new family, in his new community, greatness looks very different. Verse 35, 
Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be very last and the servant of all. Very last and the servant of all. He took a little child who he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. People sometimes say, Jesus turns the world upside down. Actually, he's turning it the right way up again. The world we live in, the world that's broken by sin and selfishness, the heart that says, me first, that's actually upside down. It's not the way of Christ. The way of Christ is the greatest is the servant of all. And that sounds nice, doesn't it? We like the sound of that, but what does it actually mean? Well, Jesus shows us what being servant of all looks like. It looks like welcoming in someone who's unable to do anything for you. Uh, In the book of James, which is later in the New Testament, James writes to a group of churches and he warns them about this kind of thing. He doesn't use the idea of a little child. He rebukes churches for welcoming in the rich person, treating them with privilege and special care and ignoring or even mistreating someone who's poor. Why do we do things like this? We honour those who the world honours. We preference those who we think can give us something in return. But that's not the way of Christ. When we do that, when we welcome those who can give us something in return, it actually denies the gospel. Because the good news of Jesus is God who needs nothing. He has nothing to gain from us. Yet in Christ, God comes near and he welcomes sinners and he makes sinners his precious people. To prefer people because they can do something for you denies the gospel. It denies the truth that God welcomes people who can do nothing for him. But we do it, don't we? If there's someone at church who's needy, you try and give them a wide berth. It's much easier to spend time with people you like. We hear what Jesus says. We need to confess that we'd prefer to welcome people who look like they've got life together who know how to play the nice social game, who are much easy, they're easy to hang out with, they're people who are well-off, intelligent, skilled, attractive. Jesus says when we do this, we're actually not welcoming anyone. We're just being self-serving. We're just using them. It looks like hospitality, but really we're just using them to make us great. But Jesus says no to that. Because being his disciple means taking up our cross and denying ourselves. It means welcoming people who can give nothing in return. Because life is not about us and what we can get. Can you imagine being in the house that day? Things must have been pretty awkward as Jesus knows what they've been arguing about and welcomes that little child and tells them that greatness is serving all. And so John, he tries to deflect the heat by showing how discerning the disciples have been. They're discerning and bold. 
They're not going to allow just anyone to take advantage of Jesus' reputation. Verse 38, Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Jesus thinks he's helping Jesus out. So John thinks he's helping Jesus out, not letting this nobody take advantage of his reputation. Though I wonder if the disciples, John's just kind of repainting the story, isn't he? The disciples actually probably told this bloke off, not because of Jesus' honour, but their own. They just failed at casting out a demon, and here's this outsider having more success than them. So in bringing this up, John, he just couldn't dug himself any deeper a hole. Jesus has just said, welcome in the little one. Welcome in the outsider. Don't stop them. Don't turn them away. Verse 39, do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Jesus here, he's not just being pragmatic. He's not simply saying, look, the religious leaders are starting to get a bit testy and they're going to come against us soon. We're going to need as many allies as possible. No, Jesus knows where he's going. He willingly takes up his cross. What he's saying about this bloke is he's not a threat. He's not a threat to you and he's not a threat to me because the kingdom of God isn't about power and reputations. It's about being last and the servant of all. It's about welcoming the little ones. Just because this bloke isn't one of us, you shouldn't be shutting him down. You should have been inviting him in. If he thinks there's power in the name of Jesus, bring him in. Let him meet the man himself because to tell him to stop is to cause him to stumble. Verse 42, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Ouch. And now in the context, who are the little ones? What does it mean to cause them to stumble? Well, the little ones, it's people we naturally exclude like the little child Jesus took into his arms, like the exorcist the disciples tried to stop. Here's this bloke, and he's he feels positively towards Jesus. What verse 42 means is by stopping him, they may well have caused this exorcist to stumble, to walk away from Jesus, not to come to Jesus and receive salvation because, well, here he is, he's just... First experience with one of Jesus' followers and they are power-hungry jerks. Jesus says, if you cause a little one to stumble, it'd be better for you to go for a nice long swim with a brick tied around your neck. Do you feel the weight of this? The pun was intended, by the way. When we make someone feel less than welcome at church, when as a Christian we make someone feel they're not worth our time, whether it's because they're a child and children can be hard work, or if they're socially awkward, or if they're just not going to help you achieve your plans, Jesus says by not welcoming them, by not giving them the same welcome God has given you in Christ, you'd be better off at the bottom of a lake. 
We can also cause people to stumble in all kinds of ways. It's not just by not welcoming them, it's by allowing false teaching. Uh, By being a church full of fights and conflict. Uh, St Andrews, the church where the politics were missed, no non-believer is going to look at that church and say, oh man, I really want what they got. I really want to meet their Jesus. No, because it doesn't matter how correct their doctrine was, and knowing a little bit about this church, they were pretty big on doctrine. No matter how correct you think your doctrine is, when people feel conflict in the air, they're going to want nothing to do with this Jesus you claim to follow. This is serious, which is why Jesus gives a serious warning. But it's not just about others and them stumbling. Jesus has stern words about ourselves, about allowing ourselves to fall away from him. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Why does Jesus mention these three body parts, hand, foot, eye? I think it's because he wants us to imagine how Sorry, I don't think it's because he wants us to sit back and imagine about how those particular body parts can be used in sin. He's painting a picture of how seriously we need to deal with any temptation to sin, temptation to give up on Jesus. It is such a serious thing. It would be worth disfiguring our bodies, our bodies which are a precious gift from God, bodies that will be resurrected. It would be even worth vandalising our bodies if the alternative was eternity in hell. And do you notice how he raises the stakes, he raises the temperature with each one? You can kind of get along in life without a hand, especially if it's your left hand, unless you're a lefty. In the ancient world, though, Being without a foot, that's going to be difficult. But with only one eye, that's a desperate situation. Jesus uses this picture to get our attention. If you haven't heard anything else, listen to this. Our situation is desperate. If your heart is anything like mine, it wouldn't matter what you cut off, my heart would still find a way to sin. To escape the ravenous worms and the inextinguishable fire, we don't need a sharper knife. We need a gracious gift of God's spirit and a new heart. Jesus' point is practical. Following him, denying ourselves, taking up our cross, it means taking radical, serious action to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. No to sin and yes to holiness. But I think the biggest point about his picture is to show how desperate our situation is. No matter how sharp the knife is, it will not solve our problem of sin. We need desperately God's grace. But it is practical as well. What does it mean in practice? How do we stop little ones from stumbling? How do we stop ourselves from stumbling? Well, first up, let's think about those little ones. 
Think about how the disciples tried to stop the exorcist and Jesus says, don't do that. How do we apply this? What does it mean in our context? Jesus is teaching a generous orthodoxy, a generous orthodoxy. Jesus doesn't mean anyone who calls themselves Christian gets a free pass. People have twisted verses 39 and 40. These verses don't mean Jesus doesn't care about truth. It doesn't matter if someone denies the Trinity or believes Jesus doesn't rise, didn't rise from the dead or it doesn't matter if they're legalists and says you've got to do certain things to be saved. No, Jesus isn't saying give falsehood a free pass just because someone claims they're a Christian. Saying whoever is not against us is for us isn't saying we give a free pass to false teaching because doing that would cause little ones to stumble. This is what Jesus is saying. We're not the only real Christians. We have brothers and sisters in in Christ in many other denominations. We want to be a church that spurs on and encourages other churches around Gympie. We want to be generous with the orthodoxy, with the truth. Look, other churches might do things a bit differently and there'll be disagreements over some things in the Bible, but we don't want to discourage them. We don't want to say, hey, you haven't got everything right, so stop following Jesus because you're not one of us. Actually, we probably then have to stop and realise we probably don't have everything right as well. No, we're to welcome We are to welcome them as brothers and sisters in Christ and encourage them to grow in knowing Jesus just as they will encourage us in knowing Jesus. So that's what it means to not cause little ones to stumble. What about for ourselves? What do you need to cut off so you might not stumble? Well, there's plenty of stuff in our life that might come into our lives that is unhelpful for growing in Christ. Stuff you watch on TV, the mindless channel flicking when you should just go to bed or letting the YouTube or Netflix algorithm fill your boredom. Uh, It might be websites that lead you to anger or envy, uh, gossip or lust. Uh, Maybe for you, Facebook isn't helpful. As you scroll through your life, One post makes you envious. I wish I had the life my friend has. Next one makes you angry. How dare they say such a thing or believe such a thing? And then an ad pops up and makes you feel discontent or greedy. Or maybe it's actually the newspapers or the news websites that tempt you to lust and sexual objectification. The headline says, you won't believe what this reality star in very... C-grade kind of star, was or wasn't wearing, and they're just begging you to click. Uh, It might be alcohol that you can't stop, or you use it to cope and hide when life's hard. It could be the news. It makes you anxious and then outraged, and it doesn't drive you to prayer or holiness. What causes you to stumble? Will you cut it off? Now, with most of those things, you've got to know yourself. For you, those things might not be a problem in the slightest and they are something that you can receive from God with thanksgiving. That's great, isn't it? Or maybe they cause you to stumble and you need to cut them off. Guess what? The world won't stop if you quit Facebook or stop reading the news. 
it's actually okay to do that. But cutting these things off might stop you drifting from Jesus. Now this section of Jesus' teaching, as he's in that house there in Capernaum, the house of Peter and Andrew most likely, finishes with something very strange, isn't it? Some very strange comments about salt. Uh, They sound a little bit like what Jesus says in Matthew 5 and sometimes when we get to things like this, tricky things that Jesus says, there's an impulse to import what we understand from another context and just assume it means the same thing here. But the problem of doing this is that we ignore then the context of what it means in Mark and often that means we'll miss the point of what Jesus is saying. So verses 49 and 15, they do sound strange to our ears, but they're reinforcing what Jesus has been saying to his disciples in that house in Capernaum. Uh, the, verse, the first saying is in verse 49. It's, a, it's part of the picture of hell. Everyone will be salted with fire. What does that mean? Well, most likely Jesus is alluding to a command in Leviticus chapter 2. Leviticus 2, season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. And you've probably just read that sentence and gone, fantastic, or two sentences, that's made everything a whole lot less clear. All right, there are two things that will help us. First, salt was part of the sacrifices. Not only the grain offering, but the last bit says all your offerings. It seems the priests would add salt to all sacrifices, whether that was grain or a sheep or bull or whatever the sacrifice was. And the second thing we need to note is that word covenant. A covenant is a promise or an agreement that shapes a relationship. God covenanted with Abraham that he would be the God of Abraham and Abraham's descendants and they would be his people. A covenant uh, is a promise that shapes a relationship. So two things to do with salt in this sentence, in this verse, a sacrifice and covenant. Sacrifice is what I think verse 49 is getting at because it draws together salt and fire, two elements of Old Testament sacrifices. Why does Jesus mention salt and fire in the context of hell? He's saying the eternal punishment of hell, the fire that cannot be quenched, is like a sacrifice. As sinners before a holy God, a thrice holy God, we've got two choices. Our sin deserves death to be burnt up by God's holy wrath. That's what we deserve. So either a sacrifice can be made, an animal, or ultimately the Lord Jesus will die on your behalf, or option two, turn your back on Jesus, you stumble in God's punishment, and so you become your own sacrifice in a manner of speaking. Two options, either Jesus is your sacrifice or you are your own sacrifice. That's what verse 49 is saying. The fire of hell will come on either the Lord Jesus or on you. But in verse 50, Jesus picks up on the second part of the picture, the salt of the covenant. The salt which symbolizes promise and relationship. And he says, when we become followers of Jesus, we don't just enter into a relationship with God, but we also enter into a relationship with each other. So stop arguing about greatness, stop playing politics, 
serve and be at peace. Verse 50, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. In their arguing about greatness, the 12 were at risk of having their salt, their covenant relationship, they were at risk of if it losing its sacrifice. Sorry, losing its saltiness. But Jesus says, be at peace. Be at peace with each other. Remember the, the covenant you have, not only with God, but with each other. Remember the values my new community is built on, where the greatest is the servant of all, where the little one is welcomed. Remember the gospel and be at peace. But we all know times when churches are not at peace or where relationships between believers are not at peace. There can be lots of reasons for this, isn't it? But one of them is pride, like the disciples wanting to be great. Like the church where the bloke missed the politics. Instead of Jesus, it's, it's about power. That's what happens when we take our eyes off Jesus. Jesus who humbled himself, becoming a servant. Jesus who welcomes all sorts of people, even us. When we're fighting for greatness, you've got to ask if you actually know Jesus. Now, this passage has raised lots of questions. They are serious words Jesus says. Uh, so as we finish, I'm going to leave us with some questions to reflect. I'm going to go up on the screen, maybe write a couple of them down. And this afternoon, read this passage again, uh, reflect on these questions. But actually start over morning tea. Pick one to chat about over a cup of this morning. So here's some questions. Question one, uh, what relationships or what are the contexts where you want to be first rather than last? How could you be the servant of all in that relationship this week? And as you ask yourself that question, it would be good to reflect on how Jesus has served you. Question two, who do you find hard to welcome? Who do you welcome because they can benefit you? And who, you, who are you asked to welcome that you naturally exclude? Think about welcoming and, and reflect on how Jesus has welcomed you. Uh, question three, what do you need to cut off so you won't stumble? And question four, uh, do you have any relationships that have lost their salt? And how could you be the one who brings peace? Uh, because Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice so that we can have peace with God. Let's pray. Our loving Father, please humble us. Help us to not be driven by politics or power, but make us like Jesus, being servants of all. Help us be welcoming, especially to those who have no way of benefiting us. Help us to value people, not because of what we get from them, but because they are image bearers, and even more, if they are if they are co-heirs with Christ. Help us value eternity with you so much that we cut off anything that has even the potential of causing us to stumble.
and strengthen us to be peacemakers in our relationships, that we'd be humble and serve others. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.